together before we go into the sermon time. So they're going to put it up on the screen, and we'll read together. All together, we confess the mystery and wonder of God made flesh and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God, He became truly man, two natures in one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived among us, crucified, dead, and buried. He rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will come again in glory and judgment. For us, he kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied God's wrath. He took our filthy rags and gave us his righteous robe. He is our prophet, priest, and king, building his church, interceding for us, and reigning over all things. Jesus Christ is Lord. We praise his holy name forever. Amen. If you would, open your Bibles with me. We're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 through 23. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 23. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, uh, you can grab a Bible in the chair in front of you under the seat pocket there, and you can turn with me to page 983. Colossians 1. If Christianity were true and it meant that you had to give up everything to follow Jesus, would you want to know the truth? This was the challenging question that David Woods, a Christian, posed to his good friend in college, Nabil Qureshi, a Muslim. For two and a half years, Nabil and David disagreed, they, ex- they discussed, they examined evidence together, and Nabil, over the course of that time, moved more and more into an understanding of the historic Christian faith. He saw that the New Testament documents were reliable. He couldn't deny the fact that the New Testament was also claiming that Jesus is God, and also that history aligns with the fact that Jesus did indeed die on the cross, a historic claim that Islam denies. From December 2004 to April of 2005, Nabil experienced three vivid dreams that led him to believe that Christianity was true, which then in turn led him to search out some of the most prominent Muslims that he could find in Washington, D.C., and Canada, and then on into England. He recounts, I heard various replies running the gamut from terribly unconvincing to fairly innovative. But one thing was abundantly clear. They were far from approaching the strength of the case for Christianity. In an article in Christianity Today, Nabil recalls reading through the Gospel of Matthew and finally surrendering his life to Jesus. But Jesus, I said, Accepting you would be like dying. I will have to give up everything. The next verses spoke to me, saying, He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. 
Jesus was being very blunt. For Muslims, following the gospel is more than a call to prayer. It is a call to die. I knelt at the foot of my bed and gave up my life. A few days later, the two people I loved most in the world were shattered by my betrayal. His mom and his dad. This passion to know the truth and to give up his life led Nabil on a search to more deeply understand the Christian faith. So he went off to Biola University for training, a master's at Duke in religious studies, and then a PhD with Oxford in New Testament studies. In 2013, Nabil Qureshi was introduced to Ravi Zacharias, and he became an itinerant preacher with the Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. In fact, Ravi and Nabil became such good friends that Nabil would call him uncle, a term of endearment and respect. And he went on to publish a New York Times bestseller, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, a devout Muslim's encounter with Christianity. The question, who is Jesus, at its core is a life-altering question. It was for Nabil Qureshi. He was a devout Muslim who, when faced with the question, who is Jesus, came to know the Jesus that was presented in the New Testament. And that Jesus that he met radically changed his life and radically redefined his relationships. This is what Jesus does. Why does Jesus have the right, though? Now, that's a big question. Why does Jesus have the right to ask us to radically follow him? Well, we'll see the answer to this as we look at our text this morning, Colossians 1, 15 to 23. This is um, undoubtedly probably the most profound, mind-blowing portrayal of Jesus. As a preacher, was I, as I was coming up upon this text, I was so excited and so fearful to preach it because literally every phrase has weight, import, and meaning. <laughs> And you could write book-length treatments on this text. So as we move forward, I want, to ask you, I want you to ask yourself, if Jesus is who Paul says he is here in this text this morning, does he deserve all of your life? And we're going to see this by unpacking the first truth. And the first truth deals with Jesus' relationship to creation. Jesus has first place in creation. Let's read verses 15 through 17 together. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You've probably heard the expression, seeing is believing, and maybe even thought to yourself, how can I believe in an unseen God? And as you look through the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, God is presented to us as an unseen God. First Timothy 6.16, Paul describes God, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. 
So the question is, is how can something invisible be made visible? How can it have an image? The word image in the Greek means an exact representation or revelation. As the image of God, Christ is an exact as well as visible representation of God. In Christ, we see who God is. He is the creator and the redeemer. What God is like, a God of grace, mercy, and love. And what God does, he reconciles an entire creation to himself through the cross. Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So Paul is not holding anything back as he's confronting the false teaching that we've been talking about. He says, are you saying that Jesus is just a step along the staircase to God? Wrong! He is God. He is the way. And let me show you by explaining his role in creation. So he talks about Jesus being the firstborn of all creation. Now, this is a little bit tougher of a phrase. Some take this phrase to mean that Jesus was the first created being. For instance, the Jehovah's Witnesses would say something along these lines. Jesus is only a creature. The first product of Jehovah God's creative work. Prior to coming to earth, Jesus was actually Michael the archangel. Now, two years ago, I heard a little rap on my door, and I answered to find two Jehovah's Witnesses standing there on my porch, and they were very cordial. They introduced themselves, and they asked me, "Uh, do you know anything about God? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I know some stuff about God. Well, what kind of stuff do you know about God, and how do you know stuff about God? Well, I happen to be a Baptist pastor of this little white church in Osterville. And then I smiled real big and I said, and we love to preach that Jesus is God. It was on. (laughs) They took me through a series of stock answers that they had been somewhat force-fed through their translation of the Bible. Now, interestingly enough, the New World Translation dramatically changes passages of the deity of Christ, like John 1.1, Hebrews 1.3, Colossians 1.15. But they leave John uh, 20.28 all alone. They leave it all alone. And so I said, have you guys ever read John 20.28 from your translation? And they said, well, we haven't read it before. Surprise, surprise. Well, let's take a look at it together. Jesus, or Thomas looking at Jesus, answers Jesus, and he says, my Lord and my God. And I go on from there and ask this question. Why is it in the New Testament that we find Jesus being worshipped? If he was just an angel... Why is it that when we look at the angel's response in the book of Revelation, when John falls to the angel's feet, the angel says to John, don't worship me. But when we look at Jesus with his disciples, they're falling on their knees. They're worshiping and they're calling him God. The conversation ended. They told me that they hadn't knocked on my door to argue semantics. (laughs) And besides, they said, Jesus never argued with anyone. (laughs) I have been reading the New Testament wrong all along. (laughs) 
To be firstborn of all creation does not have to be a reference with regard to time, like first in time or first in sequence. It can also mean first in rank and supreme in dignity. The point in this text is this. Jesus, by virtue of being the image of the invisible God, has supreme authority over the creation. When you look at the Psalter, King David is called firstborn. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. David was the eighth son. Yet God made him first. And this is where Paul is taking us. He's not just the first over creation as in he was created. He is the first over it because he is supreme over it. He made it. Look at what verse 16 says. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, if you're a nerd like me, you find these prepositions very exciting in this text. I know what you're thinking. You're like, wow, this guy's getting a little jazzed over prepositions. But let me give you an analogy to help you think through this and why it's breathtaking. Consider the construction of a house. There's different roles involved in the building process. There's the architect who drafts the plans, who gives out all the specs on what should be where and how many and that kind of stuff. Then you have the contractor who puts uh, brick to mortar, nail to wood. And then the people living in it come in and take up residence, and they get to enjoy the special features, whether it would be that man cave that you just had to have down in the basement or the hot tub out on the porch. Finally, as the owner, you're also responsible to maintain it because if you don't maintain it, the house falls apart. Here's the point. Jesus is all of these things in relation to creation. He is the architect. Verse 16 says that they were created by him, literally means in him, so that in the eternal mind of Jesus, every nook and cranny of the universe was conceived in him. The scriptures tell us that he's the architect of the seen realm and the unseen realm, the billions and billions of galaxies that we see, the amoebas in the pond. He is the inventor of beams of light, summer breezes, the heat of the sun, the scrub oak, the starfish, the the proton, the graviton. It all came from him, even the spiritual realm, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. This is Pauline language for the spiritual realm. It was all Christ's idea. He is the contractor of creation. Ex nihilo, from nothing. I mean, can you imagine a contractor building a house with no materials? Jesus did. John 1, 3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. He is also the goal. Everything was made for Jesus. One author writes this, Whatever is, is that he might be glorified and praised and enjoyed forever. He is the reason, the goal, the aim, the intent, the point, the purpose, the end, the terminus, the consummation and culmination of every molecule that moves. Not only is the agent and the goal, but he's also the glue that holds the universe together. 
In him all things hold together. So that every breath that you take, every heartbeat, every leaf that rustles along the ground is sustained by the power of Jesus. And if he was to ever loosen his grip on anything in the universe, it would vanish. But here's the comforting reality. Jesus cannot and will not lose his grip. What does this mean? It means that he is in control even when the world seems like it's falling apart. Jesus is authoritative as Harvey and Irma and Jose and Maria are forming. He is powerfully in control as a 7.1 magnitude earthquake strikes Mexico City or as wildfires are raging through Montana and Wyoming. Jesus is not losing a micrometer of his grip as Kim Jong-un breathes nuclear threats. Hebrews 1.3 tells us he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And if this is true, could you trust Jesus with your life? It boggles the mind to think that if Jesus is all of these things in relation to creation, that meaning and purpose in life could be found anywhere else other than him. If he is the creator, the sustainer, the goal of creation, then he knows how to fix your life and he knows how to order it. Jesus has first place in creation. As Paul moves us forward to verse 18, we're going to see that he also has first place in the church. Look with me there. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now I find the, the jump here in logic to be astounding. Paul talks about Jesus being the builder, the architect of creation, the owner of creation, so that everything that exists came from him. And then he moves us to talk about the church, the new creation. I mean, does anyone else find that jump astounding? I don't know about you. Have you ever felt discouraged or disenfranchised by the church? I have. I mean, I've looked at the church sometimes and said to myself, why would God use a ragtag bunch of people like us to do his work? I mean, there's no flash and flare here. It's just simple, ordinary folk. And then when you see like all the shenanigans that takes place in the church, like the denominational divides and political ambition, power grabs, hurtful words said, worship wars, leaders dropping like moral flies, it could be easy to say, Forget that. Who needs that? And if it weren't for texts like Colossians 1.18 and exposure to healthy churches, I'm sure we'd all throw in the towel. But here's what we see the Scriptures telling us, that the church is precious, prominent, and powerful in God's salvific plan. And it is all of these things Because it all rests on Jesus. He is the head of the body, the church. When he's talking about the body here, he's making a reference to the universal body of Christ. 
It is comprised of every believer who has trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. But if he is head of the universal church in general, he's also head of the local church in particular. And we see this reality in John, or Revelation, excuse me, chapter 1. You see, in this book, the Apostle John is imprisoned on the island of Patmos. I imagine that he felt like there was no more hope. But he's caught up in this heavenly vision. And while he is there, he sees in this glorious heavenly vision the risen, ascended Jesus Christ face to face. And I want you to hear how he describes Jesus. His head and hair were as white as wool, even as white as snow, and his eyes were like a fiery flame. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And when I saw him, I fell down at his feet as though I was dead. Some Christians might profess Jesus is the head of the church, but they behave and minister as if that is an authority in name only much like the Queen of England. But in John's vision of Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is walking amongst the candle stands, which are representative of the church. One commentator says this, Jesus is the inspiring, ruling, guiding, combining, sustaining power of the church, the mainspring of its activity, the center of its unity, the seat of its life, so that if you want to count the church out, you must then count Jesus out. And I'm not willing to do that. He is the head of the church. Why is he the head of the church? Why does he have this right? Paul explains he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So that when God the Father raised Jesus the Son from the dead, it signified that Jesus, on his sacrificial death on the cross, had defeated sin, and death. C.S. Lewis tells us that the New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has been opened. And if this is true, if Jesus has defeated sin and death, does he deserve your life? Jesus has first place in creation. He has first place in the church. As we move forward, we see that Jesus also has first place in reconciliation. Now, have you ever seen those before and after schemes, maybe as you're on the internet or in social media or something like that? I see them come across my feed regularly, and you read a question like this, how did John gain 25 pounds of muscle in just four weeks? And now I'm interested, so I click on that baby, and I see this picture of this scrawny, 140-pound soaking wet John, can't hold down a job John, doesn't have a girlfriend John, and the picture says before, and he's frowning. And then when you look on the other side, you see this big, 
buff, has a great job, John, with a new girlfriend, John, and he's smiling. And the picture says, after. And then I click that button and I buy that product. (laughs) While there are many before and after schemes that promise the moon and deliver very little, the New Testament promises a before and after that will radically transform your life. And it's not physical. It's not like obese to lean or puny to strong or ugly to beautiful. That's a temp- that is a temporal, superficial fix. It's spiritual. It's moral. And it's eternal in consequence. What is this before and after? Before is found in verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds... You see, in this life, our biggest problem is not financial, it's not educational, it's not genetic, it's relational. To be alienated means that there is a great barrier between humanity and God. A barrier that is full of hurt, misunderstanding, and bitterness. It's like two magnets that are the same poles repulsing one another from each other. And this barrier, according to the Bible, is insurmountable, at least on our end. Paul says that humans are hostile in mind, they do evil deeds, meaning that there's this fundamental corruption within us. So that even the things that we attempt to do that we want to do in goodness, even those things are corrupt, tainted. The night the Titanic sunk saw extremes in human behaviors from abysmal cowardice to the beauties of sacrificial love. But with the Titanic gone and the lifeboats spread all around upon the icy waters among the crying and the drowning, the story was almost totally devoted to self-serving cowardice. For the 1,600 people who were not able to get into the lifeboats, only 13 were picked up by these 18 half-empty boats that hovered nearby. R. Kent Hughes writes, To me, the personal drama of the seeking of the Titanic is a parable of a world gone wrong. Fallen humanity is adrift on unfriendly seas, alienated, unable to help one another despite some furtive individual attempts. The wrongness of everything points to the fundamental problem of people's estrangement from, either, uh, from each other or from creation by sin. It is a picture of a world desperately in need of reconciliation. And this is what we see. It's not just a, a reconciliation that's needed with people. It's also a reconciliation that's needed in creation. You know, with the recent event of hurricanes and earthquakes that have been hitting the world, I've been asked questions along the lines of, well, is this God's judgment on these particular areas? Have they done something much more wrong than the rest of the world and God's judging them? Well, I want you to listen to how Jesus responded to this type of question in Luke chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. He said, Those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And Paul talks about 
why these bad things happen in the book of Romans. He says that we are living in a sin-infested world and planet that desperately needs reconciliation. He writes in Romans 8, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, that, that end time in history when Jesus returns and makes things right. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning. I want you to think about this for a moment. If Jesus made it all, how badly do you think the fall of humanity and the fall of creation broke the Creator's heart? It's like a parent who instills values in their child and they leave their home and they disregard everything they've ever learned. It's like an inventor who she poured her loving energies into a creation that was very good and it was twisted around for destructive purposes. This is why Jesus came. It was in the eternal plan of God to reconcile to himself all things. So how was this accomplished? Well, the after is described in this text. The first way it was accomplished is through God's mediator, the God-man. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This here in the text is one of the most explicit affirmations of the deity of Jesus. The fullness of God means the totality of the deity of God. Jesus Christ is the full exhaustion of God. There is not one ounce of God missing in the person of Jesus. He is one person, fully God and fully human. He is not less God because he is human. He's not less human because he is God. Now, does that make your brain hurt? It should. Because this is a God-sized statement. Human reason can hear of this incarnation of Jesus and we can nod and we can say, the Bible talks about it, I believe in it. But the human mind cannot wrap itself around the totality of the person of Jesus. But here's the point. If our Lord Jesus Christ were anything less or other than this God-man, we would not have reconciliation. 2 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. There's no one else in all of creation that can fill the gap between God and humanity. Only Jesus. So the question is, if this is true, does he deserve all of your life? God's mediator is the God-man. God's method is the cross. What stands between the before and the after? The cross. Verses 20 and 22, Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 22, Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Who? Us. Dorothy Sayers said it well, whatever the answer to the problem of evil, this much is true. God took his own medicine. 
So that if you're ever questioning whether or not God uh, loves you, this is proof positive of the immeasurable amount of love that God has for humanity. That God would go to no length to reconcile the world back to himself. Remember what we said last week. Jesus is God's greatest gift. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of us. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If this is true, does Jesus deserve your life? God's mediator, God's method, God's purpose. Holiness. If our condition before Jesus was terrible, God's purposes in our salvation are the most noble, highest aims for humanity to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is what leads to our full flourishing as humanity. R.C. Sproul talks about the fact that at the moment you trust Jesus, in God's eyes you are totally blameless. The moment that that happens as well, the Spirit of God indwells you and he starts bringing this reality about in our lives. Listen to what he says. Luther used a simple analogy to explain how we grow in holiness. He described the condition of a patient who was mortally ill. The doctor proclaimed that he had medicine that would surely cure the man. The instant the medicine was administered, the doctor declared that the patient was well. At that instant, the patient was still sick, but as soon as the medicine passed his lips and entered his body, the patient began to get well. So it is with our reconciliation and justification. As soon as we truly believe that very instant we start to be, uh, we start to get better, the process of becoming pure and holy is underway and its future completion is certain. So that is God's purpose. But does God have a condition? Verse 23. If you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now, some people have read this text and said, does this mean that I can lose my salvation? I want you to understand a little bit of the the language usage here. Paul is using architectural language. So he's envisioning a house that is firmly set upon a foundation. Now, the background in Colossae was this was an earthquake-prone region of the land. In fact, just a couple of years, either before or after Paul writes this letter, they were struck uh, by a, a catastrophic earthquake. The word that Paul uses, not shifting, can mean earthquake-stricken. So what ensures the ultimate stability of the home is actually the foundation on which the home rests. Paul is saying if you are truly saved and built on the solid foundation of Christ, then you will continue in the faith and nothing will move you. In other words, we're not saved by continuing in the faith, but we continue in the faith because we are saved. So 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test? 
So if ever you're questioning your salvation, the only thing you need to do is go back to the gospel and ask yourself, have I trusted this? Because that's the firm foundation. Not any merit that I could produce in and through my life. So who is Jesus? Jesus is first in all things. If Jesus is the creator, the head of the church, the supreme reconciler, then he must have first place in all things. First place in our families. First place in our marriages. First place in our jobs. First place in our conversations. First place in time. First place in love. First place in pleasures. First place in what we watch. First place in what we listen to. First place in how we worship. How do we give Jesus first place? We offer him the totality of our life from the moment that we trust him to the time that we take our last breath. If Jesus is all the things that we're learning he is here in Colossians, this is the only proper response to him. In August of 2016, Zondervan released Nabil's book, No God But One, Allah or Jesus. On the day that the book was released, Nabil announced on Facebook that he had been diagnosed with advanced stomach cancer, stage four. Ravi Zacharias reflects on Nabil's life after the diagnosis. He writes, It's strained credulity. We were taken by shock. He moved to Houston for treatment, but the condition was a downward spiral. Within a few months, the handwriting was on the wall, but he remained firm that he was in God's hands. In May, he said to me, Uncle, can I do one more trip with you? I miss that time of being on the road with you. I said, Nabil, if your doctor approves, yes, please come and we will cover all expenses. Nabil did go on that trip and then he came home and he went home to be with the Lord on September 16th of this year, just about a week ago. Ravi wrote in Christianity Today, I mourn our broken world where so much hate and destruction abounds. We have a cancer called sin. We do not like the diagnosis, but it's a killer. The message that Nabil carried was true. God sent his son to heal that disease. That disease is still killing until we heed the message. May we hear God's voice reminding us that the disease that kills the body is minor. The disease that kills the soul is eternal. Nabil would want more than anything else that we carry that message of Jesus to help change the world only then can we understand that the sad news of Nabil's death is temporary. The good news of his life is eternal. Robbie says, I will miss you, dear friend. You taught me so much in your few years to run the race with passion and that our moment to bid farewell will also come. Nabil understood that in all things, Jesus had to have first place. His proper response to this was that he lived 
a life of determination to spread the gospel, and he died well. How will you respond?